I'd like to begin this morning by turning to 2 Timothy 3. So if you already went through all that effort to find Joel, you can leave a finger in there or bookmark or whatever you need to do. But uh, we're going to go to 2 Timothy 3. I just want to read two verses for us as, as we begin. 2 Timothy 3, verse number 16. All Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God, and all Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. I wanted to begin by turning your attention to to 2 Timothy 3, because I felt like we should have an explanation on why we're doing what we're doing this morning. Um, This morning, uh, perhaps you already know, uh, we are going to be in the book of Joel. If you want to be flipping right back over there, we are going to spend our time in study from the book of Joel. And I just want to be clear on why, why we're going to the book of Joel. Um, we're going to the book of Joel because the book of Joel is in our scripture. And because we believe the New Testament, we believe that all scripture is breathed out by God. And all scripture is profitable. And that includes everything from the Sermon on the Mount to minor prophets like Joel and Amos and Obadiah. It includes all portions of our Old Testament. And I know that none of you are sitting there, you know, mentally disagreeing with me. No, no, say it's not so. I don't really think that Joel's inspired. And yet uh, I'm concerned, and part of that concern has led to uh, preaching from Joel today, that while we would at least mentally agree that all Scripture is inspired by God, uh, perhaps practically we don't live that out so very well. Um, practically speaking, um, whenever we start talking about minor prophets and maybe sometimes Old Testament in general, there's a certain amount of hesitation and perhaps even fear um, with saying we're going to go to the Old Testament and learn something for us. We see all these obstacles and roadblocks. In fact, a, a common ad- attitude is um, we're, really, we're really loving the New Testament. We're, we're really enjoying, even for us, we're enjoying Matthew. And in your personal time, you might be reading through the New Testament and gleaning so much. And then there's just something about going to the Old Testament that is just so much harder. And I don't think it's just me. It it includes me, but I don't think it's just me that says, man, the Old Testament just doesn't come as easy as the New Testament. In fact, I I struggle to see clearly the the purpose and the point and the, the ability to make application. And so our first reason for going to Joel today is that all Scripture is inspired by God. And so we could turn anywhere in our Bibles and it would be profitable for you. It would be good for us this morning. We're turning to Joel particularly this morning because of its practical timing. Uh, It's a good opportunity. While Adam was gone, I had the opportunity to preach, and he and I have been talking about that. We've also been talking about our concern that uh, since we have started, we have spent a lot of time in the New Testament, and that has been good time, and that's that's right. We've been enjoying our time on Sunday mornings in the book of Matthew. We're at a good break point in Matthew. We're actually going to take a break even when Adam comes back. He finished Matthew 6. So we're actually going to take a little bit of break and, and do a series away from Matthew 6 for, for just a little bit. And so it worked out well in the timing. And, and as Adam and I were talking, we were just increasingly concerned that we, we live out our responsibility that we be proclaimers of the whole counsel of God. And one of the ways to proclaim the whole counsel of God is to turn to passages that maybe we wouldn't necessarily uh, turn to right off the bat. This morning, what you can do is hear God speak from Joel. And, and I hope that... You may not be familiar with Joel, maybe you are, but at the very least you can have this confidence, God is going to speak this morning. He's going to speak from the book of Joel. And sure, it's, it's not that this is going to be easy and it's not going to be this is as, as straightforward as maybe something in the New Testament, but God will speak to us. 
because he speaks through his word and his word is powerful. So because all scripture is inspired by God, because the timing is right, uh, because God will speak from us, uh, speak to us from the book of Joel, um, I want to I go there. And there's one more reason that we want to go to Joel, and that is that I really hope that uh, this morning and even next week, you will really gain confidence in your Old Testament. And you'll, you'll gain confidence, even specifically in the minor prophets, that, that you can have the tools that you need and the thinking you need to open your scriptures and say, this is God's word to me, and I can learn from it, and I can profit from it, and I can be confident for every good work because of the breadth of scripture. All right, so those are our goals for why we're doing what we're doing this morning. I also want to point out that we're not turning to the book of Joel because I'm an Old Testament expert, all right? Um, just like you, there are passages in the Old Testament that I go, yowzers, I don't really know what that's saying and why it's saying it, and it's hard work, all right? So you need to know up front, I realize that there's going to be some hard work involved for me today and for you today. And so I hope you're willing to, um, for the good of knowing that all scripture is inspired and there's profit, I hope you're willing to buckle your seatbelt and say, I'm going to buckle down and do some hard work in a book that maybe you haven't done a whole lot of hard work in before. Part of that hard work is really setting up the background of what we're doing in Joel. And um, I just want to give you a pledge, all right? I want to make you a promise before we get going in background stuff. Maybe you hear background and you think, oh, great, how, you know, can we just get to Joel? Well, I really feel like we can't just jump right into Joel because we really need to, to get situated in where we are in the minor prophets and what the minor prophets are for. And, and so really, I want to promise you this morning that when I say background, we're going to be talking about things that are relevant, all right, um, to, to your understanding of Joel. So I'm not just going to be talking about scholarly things that don't matter. Um, we're actually going to be talking about things that will help you understand the book of Joel. And I, I think we need to talk about these before we actually go to Joel 1.1, all right? First of all, just a, um, an introduction to the minor prophets. How do the minor prophets connect to the whole of the Old Testament? Um, well, in actuality, in the Jewish scriptures, the prophets were central in the Jewish understanding of the scriptures. What you had in, in the, the way the Jewish scriptures were arranged, you had the Torah, and the Torah is what? Okay, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And directly after Torah, after law, they went to prophets. See, prophets was the center of the Jewish scriptures. They, happened, they divided their prophets into former prophets, which would include Joshua and Judges and Samuel and Kings. They had former prophets and they had latter prophets. Latter prophets being like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and then all of the minor prophets. And after they had the law, then they had the prophets and then they had the writings. And the writings was everything else. So like Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon's. Song of Solomon, all of those were in the writings. And so in the threefold division of the Jewish scripture, prophets came in the middle. And already you're going, you, are you breaking your promise? Uh, you said that everything you said would be relevant. It, it is relevant, and, and here's why it's relevant. These are not insignificant books. Okay, The, the minor prophets are not minor in importance. And we call them minor because they're so much smaller than big books like Isaiah and Jeremiah. But these are not insignificant in fact, you are cutting out the heart of your Old Testament if you ignore the prophets. That was the Jewish understanding of Scripture, and that was the right understanding of Scripture, that you begin with law, and you have God's commands, and then you have prophets. You have prophets who explain what God wants. They explain in more detail God's commands. They call to repentance. They warn about sin. And then you finish with writings, which goes to the heart of how it is we're supposed to live out 
how the Jews were supposed to live out their religion. All right, so this was the, this is the heart and, and the soul, the center of the Old Testament. And so if we do practically live by ignoring either former prophets or latter prophets or what we call minor prophets, you just have to understand that practically you're cutting out part of the heart of your Old Testament. And so that's why it matters that these are central in the Old Testament scriptures. They're important. They're also unified. We call them the minor prophets. There are 12 different prophets. And in actuality, also in Jewish scripture, they were just one big book. It was one book of, they called it the 12. And that's important because there is unity in these 12 minor prophets. They are, they are connected to each other. And they're also connected directly to the first writing prophet. Does anybody know who the first writing prophet of the Old Testament was? Sorry, it was Moses. And so all of these prophets trace their lineage directly to Moses. And so there is unity among the prophets, and there is a direct connection to Moses. They repeat themes that Moses presented, and they further prophesy words from the Lord that the Israelites needed to hear. And so you have them saying things and, and doing symbolic acts that were directed by the Lord. You have them thinking about Israel's special place as God's chosen nation. You have constant confrontation of sin. All right, constant confrontation of sin and rebellion. You have the constant promise that God is going to judge sin. You have the constant promise that despite punishment, God is still going to have compassion. Right? These are themes that run all throughout all of the minor prophets and, and hold all of them together. You also have the promise that eventually God is going to restore his people. And in fact, that restoration is going to be a blessing to all of the nations. And so you have a direct connection to the Abrahamic promises. Um, that the, the minor prophets are directly connected to the Abrahamic promises of blessing to all people, and so they matter. These books, these minor prophets, are also poetic. Uh, you may even notice the formatting in your Bible. If you're already open to Joel, you may even want to take a quick, quick glance down there, and you'll see that even, uh, even the way the formatting, the actual text formatting is in, in your Bibles, it's set up in a different way. If you were to flip over to for instance, uh, Genesis or somewhere in Samuel, you'll see nice paragraph form. Here we are in Joel, and there's all this indenting and, and line structure. Do you know what that's for? That's for a reason. That's actually to indicate that what you're looking at is poetry. All right? You're looking at declaration from God in the form of poetry. The, the minor prophets are very poetic. And in fact, that's part of the problem we have with them, right? Um, because we have our own thinking of poetry, and the Jews had a whole other way of looking at poetry. And we're not very good at Jewish poetry, frankly. Uh, I'm not good at it, and, and you're probably not either. Um, and so it's another obstacle, and yet we should know that going into the Minor Prophets, we're looking at poetry, we're looking at a form that is not a story form. And a lot of times we go to the stories in the Old Testament, and they're kind of comforting. Like, we can understand a story, right? And we can read a story, and it's kind of exciting, and, and we can track with that. And then we get to the Minor Prophets, and there's no more story. Uh, there's just poetry and condemnation and judgment, and we go whoa, 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 whoa here. I, I'm really struggling with, with seeing the relevance of this. And they didn't even tell me a story to, to help me figure it out. I'm just lost, wandering. I have no idea what's going on. Okay? There, there are these hurdles and there are these obstacles. But we really have to deal with these obstacles because we are fundamentally committed to understanding that we cannot know what God is saying until we know what God was saying originally. That is a fundamental premise of everything we do in our preaching here at Grace. And that is, God's word speaks not by us extrapolating into our day and finding out how we can get the text to where we are, but by us saying, okay, why was it written? What was the original meaning? 
What did the author intend? And that's where we find our meaning. So we don't find our meaning in, in relevant. We don't find our, our meaning in today. We don't look for meaning in, well, what does it mean to us? We find our meaning by saying, what did it mean when he wrote it? And then we can take our principles and then we can apply them to ourselves. All right? The difference that this creates is, for instance, we already read through, uh, you, you may have gotten the idea that there's going to be some locust involved today, all right? Uh, I hope you caught that. There, we only said locust like 18 times. Um, what we're not going to do today is say, um, locusts destroy things, and um, so today I want to talk to you about five locusts that will eat away at your marriage. And we talk about how locusts are destructive, and then we find principles for how we can deal with marriage. That's not the point, all right? The locusts are here for a reason, and so we don't start with locusts and then jump off to some other topic. We say, okay, what are they here for? What are they to teach us? All right, so we have to go back. We, we're not just trying to jerk this passage to us. We're going back to what Joel meant in this passage. And so, yeah, there's, there's hurdles and there's obstacles, and we need to overcome them because if we don't, we'll never understand the book of Joel. All right, that's the Minor Prophets uh, in overview. Um, just a quick intro to Joel itself. Um, Joel was written. Does anyone want to know when Joel was written? See, you want me to tell you that Joel was written in like 836 uh, BC, and you could scribble that down in your notebooks, and that really uh, doesn't really connect anything to life, right? All right, you're going 836, so what? Well, the so what of telling you when Joel was written, or when our best guess that Joel was written, is actually that Joel is the first of the minor prophets. Did you know that? Minor prophets are not in chronological order, and so Joel is actually the first of the minor prophets. He was probably written in the time of Joash, and so probably more helpful than writing down something like 836, we'll be writing down 2 Kings 11 and 12. That's the time of Joel, all right? 2 Kings 11 and 2 Kings 12 is the time when Joel was written, according to our best guess. Um, he is written, it is written to, to Judah at this time in Israel's history. We have a divided kingdom, all right? So you had David was the king of all Israel. His son was Solomon. And after Solomon, the nation split. And so you had Israel in the north and you have Judah in the south. Well, Joel is written to Judah in the south. Do you know one major distinction between Judah and Israel? Do you know how many good kings Israel had? Israel had zero good kings, not a single one. All of their kings were evil in God's sight. And so actually Israel was the first to go into captivity. And they went into captivity around 722. So about 100 years after Joel, Israel goes into captivity. All right, so just to kind of give you a framework, we're talking the same time as Elisha. All right, Joel was a contemporary with Elisha. All right, so if that helps you kind of get your framework of where it is in biblical history. We're talking 2 Kings 11. We're talking contemporary of Elisha. Uh, we're talking in the 9th century BC. All right. This is before Isaiah. Um, this is before Hosea. Um, this is early, very early um, in comparison to all the rest of the prophets. Uh, that's helpful. All right. You say, why, why does that help me? Well, a lot of times we get to, we get to the minor prophets and they're just like out there on their own. Um, I mean, we finished reading Psalms and Proverbs, and we've, we've even read um, Daniel, and we've already been thinking about end times. Then we get to the prophets, and we don't really know how they fit into anything of biblical history. And so we just tend to divorce them from even their application in their day. Now remember what I, what I just said? We have to discover the application and meaning in their day. And so if the prophets are just divorced in our minds of, of any real cultural historical context, that makes it even harder for us to find the meaning for us, Okay. So we have to know where they fit into Israel's history. So they fit at the time of the divided kingdom 
and things are, things are going really badly in the divided kingdom. There is sin um, that is rampant, and that's why when you read the Minor Prophets, you read somewhat condemnation, because the Israelites were just sinning left and right. In fact, God was going to punish them in exile. And that punishment is actually the theme of the book of Joel. The theme of today's message and even of the book of Joel is that God always punishes sin, and so we must repent accordingly. Okay? That's the point of Joel. You say, um, is, is there really stuff from Joel that we can apply to ourselves? Just listen to that theme. God always punishes sin. And so we must repent accordingly. There is rich meaning for us today from the book of Joel. And so let's get into the study of the book of Joel. Joel 1, verse number 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. And at the end of verse number 1, you now know everything we know about Joel. You know, you know that his name is Joel and that his dad was Pethuel. And that's it. That's all we know about Joel. And, and that's fine. Uh, we don't need to know anything else about Joel or else God would have told us. We just know that God's word came to him and he spoke it. And that's just a common phrase all throughout the Minor Prophets. The word of the Lord came and then the prophets speak. And so as we begin the book of Joel, we are immediately confronted with the fact that God is speaking here. All right? These are God's words through Joel. And Joel chapter 1 focuses our attention on the fact that God always punishes sin. That's our first point today. God always punishes sin. We're going to see, first of all, that of that punishing sin, God's punishment is devastating. Let's look in verse number 2. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Joel starts out and he says, listen to this, you elders, you leaders of the land. I want you to give ear. I want you to listen on purpose, listen intentionally, all inhabitants of the land. I want everybody to pay attention, all right? All, every Jewish person, pay attention. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? He's saying nothing like this has ever happened. Nothing like what? Well, he's going to get to that. Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. Joel says, look, I, I want you to tell your kids and I want your kids to tell their kids and I even want their kids to tell their kids about it. And... Joel's listeners and Joel's readers aren't confused at all about what it is. They know exactly what it is. It's the most devastating, staggering thing that had ever happened in Judah's history. It was absolute disaster. And what was that disaster? Verse number four. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Uh, what, you, what we have here is a picture of an invasion of locusts. And these aren't, this is not like these are scientific categories of locusts. These are all different words for locust. And yet it's just saying there was this massive, intensive herd of locusts. And basically they came and wiped out everything. I mean, they came and absolutely obliterated all of the crops that are in Israel. And that's a major problem because Israel is a completely agrarian society. Right? They are completely dependent on, on their food. They're growing their own food. They're exporting their own food. Um, so that they're getting money through the food that they grow. Um, our valley would be devastated if something happened to all of our crops, and yet the, the crops that we grow here are generally not life-sustaining crops. What we're talking about here is that food that is necessary for living has been absolutely wiped out. And there's never been an invasion of locusts like this ever before. Why did this invasion of locusts come to Israel? Well, I'm sure you had your secularists in, in Israel who, just like our day, say, well, things happen. And, uh, well, it was just a matter of chance. And once you know, a whole bunch of bugs just happened to pick Israel and wiped it clean. 
Um, in actuality, Joel's message is God punishes sin. And those locusts that, that he sent were part of his punishment on your sin. You see, God always punishes sin, and that punishment is devastating. So many times we want to think about God's punishment. And remember, we're talking here of punishment on his people, his erring people. We like, to, we like to think about God as kind of like a grandfather disciplinarian, right? Um, you've ever, you guys ever seen the uh, grandpa's paddle? You guys ever seen one of those? Um, they sell them in, I don't know tourist traps and stuff. Uh, it's like a fly swatter and has a pad on the end and it says grandpa's paddle on it. Um, you know, just a nice, a nice swat and you're not even going to feel it. And grandpa just doesn't enforce discipline like parents um, should or, or um, might, might do. Um, so sometimes we get this idea of God. I mean, he's loving and he's just gracious. And so if he does ever get around to discipline, then I'm sure he, he just likes to tap us on the wrist and say, they're there now, naughty, naughty. All right. The message of Joel is actually... God's punishment, even on his people, can be absolutely devastating. Because sin is horrendous. Sin is horrible. We've just been spending a lot of time in the Sermon on the Mount. And we have been confronted over and over again with some very practical applications, haven't we? I mean, haven't you thought that the last couple of weeks, um, whether it's, it's our approach to our danger of hypocrisy in religion, um, whether it's our danger in materialism, we've been confronted um, face-to-face with some very practical issues And the book of Joel is good for us, even on the heels of thinking about those practical issues, to remember that when we choose to sin, when we know what is good, and yet we still choose to disobey, when we fail to live out the kingdom perspectives of Matthew 5 and Matthew 6, there is punishment that we can expect from God. And that punishment, we ought not think of a grandfather punishment. We we should expect that God can give devastating punishment even to his own children. God's punishment can be devastating. God's punishment touches every sinner and every class of sinner. And Joel's going to go through and he's going to address all these different groups of sinners. Verse 5, he says, Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. Joel's, Joel starts and he talks with, with these people that are drunkards, all right? Um, and that's, that's exactly what it means, people, people that are drunk. Um, what you would have is you had people that were living such a luxurious lifestyle that they could afford to have lots of wine, and they could even get drunk on it. They had enough wealth that they, they didn't even have to work. They could, they could waste a day or two just being completely drunk. And, and so really what's happening here is that God brings punishment on those whose luxury has been removed from them. Because he says the sweet wine's gone. It's cut off from your mouth. Um, why did that happen? Well, a nation has come up against my land. And he's not talking about an actual physical nation. He's comparing the locust herd as if they were a whole nation. And he says they're powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth and has the fangs of a lioness. All right? You just need to understand, as we read through the Minor Prophets, that because it's poetry, there's going to be lots of figurative language. All right? there's going to, there's going to, he's going to be using hyperbole and, and similes and metaphors and all these things to try to describe what the locusts were like. And so he says, well, the locusts were like, well, they had teeth like lions. I mean, you think about a lion, you think about power and killing and destruction. That's what these locusts were like. They just tore everything to pieces. It laid waste my vine. It splintered my fig tree. Stripped off the bark, the branches are made white. Basically saying the locust came and just wiped everything out. You say, that's, that's all well and good, but uh, my trees have not been wiped out. I, I'm not living in 836 or whenever this was written, so so what? I mean, so what that their trees got torn apart? Well, the so what is their trees got torn apart for a reason, and the reason was that they were rebelling against God. They were choosing idolatry. They were mixing in the worship of Jehovah with the worship of Baal. They were trying to, they were trying to do both at the same time. 
They were trying to say, I worship God in the temple, and then I go up to the high places, and I worship to idol, and I worship idols, and I make sacrifices to them. And I take part in all kinds of pagan heathen rituals. I'm trying to do both. And that's not so different than us today. We are still trying to do both. Um, how about just the one topic of materialism that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks? We are still trying to serve both masters, right? Then that, then that hits you right between the eyes. Man, I, I struggle with this. I, I know that I can only be a master of God, and yet the temporary, the now, the treasures, the accumulating things for now, that has a pull on me, doesn't it? I mean, it pulls us away. And, and so we're trying to be synchronistic in our worship too. In other words, bringing our worship of God and our worship of idols together at the same time. It doesn't work. In fact, it incurs God's judgment. And that's when we read this, we should say, wow, God treats sin very seriously. In fact, he strips them of their luxury. Not only that, but he also removes their worship. Look at verse number eight. He says, lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord the priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. You see, what happened when the locusts came and destroyed all the food, destroyed all the trees, is that now the people were unable to sacrifice to God. Because they had to give, according to the Mosaic Law, they had to give certain offerings. There were grain offerings involved. There were cereal offerings involved. And guess what? If you don't have wheat and you don't have food, you can't sacrifice to God anymore. And your animals are dying, so now you can't sacrifice your animals. What was actually happening in in Joel was Joel was saying, you have been punished, and God has said, fine, you're going to worship me the wrong way? I'm just going to remove worship from you altogether. Uh, You want to worship me in idols? Forget it. You're not going to be able to worship me. All you're going to have is your idols. He completely removed the possibility of going to the temple and giving sacrifices because they didn't have the food to do it. That's a powerful lesson for us. God cares so much about right worship that he basically told his people in the book of Joel through this plague, Fine, you're going to worship me the wrong way? Don't worship me at all. That's how seriously God views idolatry. That's how seriously God views a split allegiance in your heart and in my heart. He says, worship me the right way. He goes on and he talks to the farmers. And he says, look, you need to be ashamed in verse 11. You need to wail because the wheat and the barley, the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up and the fig tree languishes. He says, all these things are dried up. And gladness even dries up from the throne of man. Not only is luxury gone from those who would be drunk, not only is worship gone, but now even the necessary food is gone. And so the situation has progressively gotten worse. Well, first you got rid of all your luxury, and then you lost your ability to worship God, and now you're about to lose your ability to live because all your food's gone. The situation has grown progressively worse. And why has the situation happened? It's happened because God's people have chosen to sin, and God does what he always does when he confronts sin. He punishes it. God always, always punishes sin. And yet God's punishment always demands repentance, and that's what the last half of chapter 1 tells us. Verse number 13, Joel says, What you need to do is put on sackcloth, and, and you need to lament. You need to mourn over your sin, priests. Ministers of the altar, you need to wail. You need to spend the whole night in sackcloth. It's a sign of mourning. And the reason is, well, the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Your worship opportunity is gone, and so you need to repent. You need to turn now. You need to turn back. You need to call fast in assemblies. You need to get everybody together. He's in verse 14, you need to get the elders, all the inhabitants of the land, come to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to him. He says, because of the punishment that has come upon you, what's the right response to punishment? Right response is repentance. It's not to grow angry at God and say, why are we suffering like this? 
It's not to say, why are we in the middle of famine and drought? It's to say, God, where have I sinned? And how can I repent and turn back to you? And Joel doesn't list exactly what the sins of the Israelites are. And I think that makes Joel an an even more timeless book because he he doesn't list all the exact sins that they have done so that we could look at that list and say, well, I'm, I'm not doing all of that. I'm not doing any of those things that the Israelites were doing. He just says, you've sinned. And so now turn back to God. And we go, okay, that's us too, right? I mean, he didn't say you're worshiping Baal because none of you sitting here today are worshiping Baal. He just said, you've walked out on God. You've abandoned God. And that opens up a whole world of application to us, ways that we sin against our God as well. Over and over again, Joel says, gather together to repent. And he talks about just the extreme despair that comes with the drought and the locust and the famine that comes. He describes that in 17 and 18, even the animals. The storehouses are torn down. There's no food in any of the granaries. The beasts are groaning. There's no pasture for them. He says in verse 18, even the flocks of sheep suffer. He says that because sheep have this remarkable ability to eat pretty much anywhere. And they can eat food that not even a cow can eat. And so he says, it's gotten so bad that even the sheep are suffering. All right, we're in desperate straits here. And the right thing to do when you're in desperate straits because of God's punishment is to repent, to turn back. And that's exactly what Joel models in verse 19. He says, to you, O Lord, I call. And this is the first time that we hear something personal from Joel. Joel just interjects himself into the situation and, he's, and he says, this is what's gone on in Israel's history. And so, to you, Lord, I call. Because fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness and flame has burned all the trees of the field. He's not talking about a wildfire like we have in California all the time. He's talking about a drought that has consumed the grass and consumed the trees. He says, even, even the beasts of the field pant for you. Joel says, look, even the animals are longing for God and for his intervention because they don't have any more water and it has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. No more water, no more food. Joel says, We need to turn back to you, and I'm turning to you in repentance because you have punished. What can you learn from Joel chapter 1? You can learn that God always, always punishes sin. And that punishment can be a devastating, ruthless punishment. You can learn that God's punishment touches all classes of people. You can learn that God's punishment should lead you to repentance. There's a passage that I would like us to turn to in the New Testament, uh, Hebrews chapter number 12. If you would flip over there. We'll get out of Joel. You can get into something a little more comfortable. Uh, Hebrews. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 12. You say, you keep talking about God's punishment and God's punishment and God's punishment. Um, I thought that because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, uh, Christians don't have to worry about God's punishment. Um, surely the Israelites were just, were just getting punished because they were unregenerate people. Um, they were acting like pagans. Hebrews 12 has some news for us when it comes to God's punishment. Look at verse number 5 of Hebrews 12. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. You see, if you're a genuine believer today, it's not that you, are, you have gotten an escape from God's punishment. You actually have the promise of God's disciplining punishment if you're a true believer today. If you're a true believer sitting here this morning and, and you are sinning and you are pursuing sin and you, and you don't have a sense that, that God has punished you in some way, uh, you, have a, you have a serious reason to question your salvation because Hebrews tells us that God punishes everybody who's a genuine son. Verse 7, it's for discipline that you have to endure. 
God is treating you as a son. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? All right? And, and I mean, we have to deal with that in, in our culture. I realize in our culture, discipline is at like an all-new low. All right? So the answer to our question, to this question in today's society, um, what father does not discipline his son? Today it's like, well, most fathers don't do it. But the biblical understanding is that fathers are responsible to discipline their children. In fact, if they don't discipline their children, they're hating them. They're not showing them love. They're not directing them. So the biblical understanding is anyone who's a, a real father would actually man up and discipline his kids. All right, That's the right thing to do. And so God is the ultimate father. He's the best father. And so if we're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and you're not sons. All right? That's God's word from Hebrews 12. If you aren't receiving God's discipline in your life for sin, and we all sin post-conversion, if you're not experiencing God's discipline, Hebrews says, you're illegitimate. Uh, you, you think you're a son of God. Actually, you're a son of Satan. You, you've got the wrong parent. Uh, you thought God was your dad. Actually, Satan is your father. If you can live without God's discipline on you as a Christian. And that's a reason for us, while discipline is not fun and it's not enjoyable, there's a reason for us to find joy in the disciplining hand of our God. Because it guarantees for you that you are a believer. It is a good thing that God is not just going to let you go in your sin, Christian. God isn't just going to give you an interminable leash and say, okay, I, I know you messed up again. I'll just give you a little more room. I'll give you a little bit more room. They're there now. I really would rather you come back, but I'm just going to let you go. God doesn't, that's not how God acts. You see, because God is a loving father. And at some point, God is going to bring the hammer down, just like he brought the hammer down on the Israelites, because God disciplines those who he loves. That's a message from Joel. It's a message repeated in the New Testament and a message we should take to heart because you see that, that, that changes our perspective, right? God is a disciplining father. And so now that affects how we look at him. Joel has actually just made us better theologians. He has said, look at God a certain way. Look at God as a disciplining father. And we ought to respect him that way. We ought to fear God's punishment. We ought, we ought to be grateful that God punishes us. And we should respond correctly to that punishment. The writer of Hebrews said, don't think, don't think lightly about God's discipline and don't get tired of it. Don't get tired of it. And you feel that God is, always, God is always correcting you and he's directing you. And don't ever get that like shake God's hands off your shoulder and say, man, I, I just enough. I'm just tired. God's just always pushing me. And, and whether it's messages I hear or directions he brings in my life, he's just always pushing, pushing, pushing. Why can't he just give me a rest? He, can't, he doesn't give you a rest because he's your loving father and he wants the best thing for you. And the best thing for you is to hate your sin and to turn away from it. That was the best thing for the Israelites was to abandon their idolatry. It's the best thing for us to abandon our sin as well. And so we see that God is a punisher of sin. He's even a punisher of sin when it comes to believers. And yet at the same time, there is no way that we could ignore the fact that if God is willing to punish his own children, how much more will he punish those who do not love him? How much more will he bring not a correcting discipline, but an actually a retribution on their sin, a punishment that will last not just for a moment that will bring them to correction, but actually for an eternity? This is something that is true about God, something that's denied in our day, that can be denied in our own thinking, that God is a punishing God. And yet that's the message of Joel, and that is the truth from God's word, that we have a God who is a punisher, he punishes sin. And that should bring a sobriety to us when we think about our sin. That should bring a seriousness about sin. We cannot treat sin lightly. We cannot pretend that we can dally around with materialism and with worry and excuse it away. We don't have that luxury. 
We have a God who disciplines those who worry. We have a God who disciplines those who are materialistic. We have a God who disciplines those who lie. Our God is a punishing God, and we should respect him because of it. And yet we also see from the book of Joel that the God is a God who warns about future punishment. And, and this is actually a, a blessing from the book of Joel. Joel chapter 2 turns the corner. We move on from looking at the past of God's judgment, and Joel 2 begins to look at the future. And Joel 2 turns our attention to the fact that there's actually worse judgment to come. You see, the, the temporary plague of the locusts, the present tragedies of the drought, were types, Joel says, of the great universal judgment that was to come. And Joel functions as a warning. He says, look, God has been punishing because of sin, and God is going to punish because of sin. That's Joel 2. And he uses some language that's really difficult, and yet it's really picturesque. He says, blow the trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Right? They would blow the trumpet to gather together for battle, to let people know that there was danger. And he says, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. We can't, you can't go too far in Joel without being struck with this idea of the day of the Lord over and over and over again. In fact, no other prophet besides Joel deals as much with the day of the Lord. What is he talking about when he says the day of the Lord? What Joel is talking about is not any one particular day or an exact moment. He's talking about the time of God's universal judgment on mankind. All right? And the Old Testament talks a lot about the day of the Lord. In other passages, we have it repeated in the New Testament. We have all these facts about the day of the Lord. It's a, the day of great seismic disturbance and the uh, moon turned to blood and just disaster on every hand. It's God's universal judgment. And Joel says, look, you think it's bad now? Uh, the locusts really wiped everything out. You need to realize that there's a worse judgment coming. It's called the day of the Lord. And he says that day is coming. In fact, it's near. It's a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. And he goes on to describe the day of the Lord, and he reminds them of what the locusts were like. And, uh, and look at his description of the day of the Lord coming, um, when he is going to bring destruction. He, he talks about an army that's coming. Look at verse 3. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. Right? So you have this picture of burning fire in front and behind this army. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them. I mean, isn't that picturesque? Isn't that beautiful? Can, can you see, like in your mind's eye, you're up on a hill and you look out and you see this beautiful green valley and the fruit is lovely and luscious and everything is green and wonderful and the birds are chirping. And then you see this black horde. And behind the black horde, you just see wisps of smoke and you see singed trees and you see burnt grass and it's all desert and dust behind them. That's Joel's picture of what the day of the Lord is like. Oh, it's all fine and well up to it, but when the day of the Lord gets there and his army hits, it's annihilation behind it. It's, a, it's an amazingly picturesque uh, image he uses. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like war horses they run. What's he talking about? Well, he's actually using an image that even John uses in the book of Revelation. Talk about more uncomfortable territory for us, right? Revelation talking about prophecy. And even John talks about the fact that when God's destruction comes on the, on the day of the Lord, he, he tries so hard to think of ways to explain the Lord's army and the destruction that comes with it. And, and he even uses words like locust. Uh, he, and he says, look, these, these, they're, they're locusts, but they kind of like the appearance of horses and like war horses they run. He's talking about an army of destruction that we read about in Revelation. And he says, it's like the rumbling of chariots and they leap on the tops of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble like a powerful army. Before them, people are in anguish. All right? People are just in despair. Like warriors, this army will charge, and like soldiers, they scale the wall. 
He's talking about this. It's like a big army crashing in to a city. And he says, these guys, like warriors, they march each on his way and they do not swerve from their paths. Can you imagine an army where the soldiers are marching side by side and no matter what kind of arrows um, hit into them, no matter what kind of boulders come flying in, they don't move. They just keep marching side by side. And when one falls, another one just takes his spot. And when two more fall, another takes his spot. And they just keep coming. And they keep coming. They don't swerve. They don't jostle one another. They don't run into each other. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. All right, it's this picture of this unstoppable army. That's, that's what the image that Joel is telling us. He's talking about the day of the Lord. Look down at verse 11. Because then we find out who it is that's leading this army. And who is it that's directing this army? The Lord utters his voice before his army. We're talking about the day then when God will come to bring universal judgment on mankind. His camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord, the day of universal judgment, is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? So Joel has said, look, you guys have went through a horrible drought and horrible locust invasion, and that was because of your sin. But you know what you need to know? You need to know that there's something far worse that could come. And that is the day of the Lord. When you think you had it bad now, it'll be ten times worse. And that's God's warning about future punishment for sin. That's, that's God's grace to say through the prophet, do you know what? A worse day is coming. Because do you know what that, do you know what that does for the Israelites when God says something worse is coming? Do you know what that, that warning does? It gives them a chance. It gives us a chance. When God warns about something coming in the future, you can take note and you can take heed and you can live differently because of it. Because this day of the Lord was future for the Israelites and it's still future for us. There's a day coming when God will pour out universal judgment on this world. And Joel says, it's, that day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? You know what the answer to that question is? Nobody can endure it. Nobody can endure the day of the Lord. You need protection from this. How are you going to get protection from God's wrath that is going to come on all people? Look at verse 12. Joel has told us that God punishes sin. Joel has told us that God warns about future punishment for sin. And now we'll see that God calls for repentance from sin. Listen to these words. Yet even now, declares the Lord. Okay, I've told you this, yet, yet even right now, you still have a chance right now, even now, declares the Lord, declares Yahweh, return to me with all your heart. He says, before it comes, now, come back to me. He says, come back with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. This is an amazing picture of internal repentance. We need to know today that our natural inclination to idolatry, and I'm not just talking about stones and wood that, that we think of when we think of idolatry, I mean all of the idols of our heart, anything we prop up that we worship more than God, our natural inclination to idolatry demands wholehearted repentance. Right? This is not a theme that's new to us, thanks to the Sermon on the Mount. God doesn't just demand partial return to him. He doesn't say, you could worship me and other things. He says, I want your whole heart. He says the exact same thing in Joel. All right? God hasn't changed. God wasn't different somehow back in the Old Testament, where he said, okay, you can worship me half-heartedly. No, he says, return to me with all your heart. That's his command. That's his cry. That's his call to the Israelites. And that's his call to us today. 
If you're a Christian and, and there's a part of your heart you're holding back from God, he says, return to me with all your heart. He says, rend your hearts and not your garments. They would tear their clothes as a sign of mourning. When, when someone in the family died or when something awful happened, they would tear their clothes. And God says, I don't want you to do something external. I don't want some external act that, that displays to everyone around that you're sad. I want you to tear your heart. Tear your heart. Be broken in spirit. Where have we heard this before, right? Be broken in spirit. Be broken in heart. That's genuine repentance. And that's the genuine repentance God has always wanted from his people. Because we're so prone to idolatry. And we try to put God and together all the time. And God says, no, get rid of the and. I want you to return to me completely with your whole heart. And it's fascinating looking at Joel 2.12. I don't know how often you've thought about that verse in Joel 2, 12 and 13. But that verse is extremely applicable to us now. And I think our, your sense of, of the meaning of that verse should only be heightened because of what we studied in the Sermon on the Mount. We know that God longs for soul authority in our lives. And here, here he's saying the same thing. I want you to come back to me and to me alone. Our natural inclination to idolatry demands wholehearted repentance but God's divine character drives hopeful repentance. All right? We can base our repentance on God's character. Look what he says in verse 13. Return to the Lord your God. Why? For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. And here we are in the book of Joel, a book that maybe you haven't read a whole lot, a book that there might have been obstacles and hurdles to us thinking about. And then you hit a verse like this, and can't you just revel in the description of the character of your God? I mean, look at that. This is our God. He is gracious and merciful. He gives favor to those who don't deserve it. He is loyal to us all the time. His love doesn't take a break. He is merciful. He has loyal love. He is slow to anger. It's right for us to think of God as punishing, but we have to remember God, is, God doesn't fly off the handle. Uh, God doesn't have a temper against his children. He's slow to anger. In fact, God is even slow to anger against the unsaved. This is our God. He is abounding in steadfast love. Isn't that a beautiful description of the love of God? It's steadfast. It doesn't waver. It's not going to be on you one moment and God the next. God's love is steadfast. And understanding God this way should drive our repentance. It should drive your repentance tomorrow. When you sin against God tomorrow, you should go, I know God's character, and I know God's going to extend me grace again. And so the right thing for me to do is not just keep living in my sin. It's for me to abandon it and say, God, I'm sorry. I need your help. I need your forgiveness. I know you're merciful. I know you're slow to anger. I I know you have steadfast love. And so I want to come back to you again. I want to return to you. It says he relents over disaster. Has the idea of changing his mind about the calamity he was going to bring. You see, when we repent, God can avoid bringing the punishment that we would have had had we not repented. God does that. When you return to God, he, he doesn't have to bring that disciplining hand on you. As you're, since you're his child, as you repent, he doesn't have to bring you back if you have already come back to him. And so let his character drive you in repentance before his discipline has to. Because his discipline will. Far better for us that we allow his character to drive us back to him in repentance. Joel 2.14 2, tells us, Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. This isn't Joel saying, I'm not really sure God can do this. He's not expressing doubt. He's just saying, I am not going to commit God to this. I am not, I am not going to say, I deserve this. This is mine. 
I deserve to be forgiven. See Joel's humility? Man, who knows if God's going to do this. He's going to turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. And what is that blessing? A grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Why are we back talking about grain offerings and drink offerings? What we're back to, you say, again, I don't do grain offerings, I don't do drink offerings. There's another way that Joel just doesn't have anything to do with my life. Uh, We have to remember, why did the grain and drink offerings need to be restored? Because the famine had eaten them. And so what actually that meant was that they couldn't worship God. So what's it mean when you have grain offerings and drink offerings available again? You can go back to worshiping God the right way, the way he expects You see, repentance and restoration always leads to renewed worship. Repentance, restoration, brings you back to a right relationship. It brings you back to renewed worship. And we need that over and over again, don't we? We need to again and again, with our repentance, be restored to God so that we can have a a right relationship with him and we can worship him the way we're supposed to. That's what it means that they could have grain offerings and drink offerings again. This isn't some like, esoteric principle this is this is something that matters to you that when you return to your god you can worship him freely and you can have the right relationship with him that you your heart longs for it's possible through repentance we have a god who punishes sin we have a god who warns about future punishment for sin we have a god who calls us for repentance and so joel finishes this section verse number 15 he says again let's call everybody together Start a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Let's get everyone together. He says, whether it's the congregation, whether it's the elders, let's even get the children. Let's even get those nursing infants. Uh, Let the bridegroom leave that whole marriage thing behind. Let the bride leave her chamber. Okay, quit the honeymoon. Let's get together. And we need to repent. We need everybody to repent. Young, old, in between, married, infants. We need everyone together. Because what we need to do is repent. He says, come between, in verse 17, come between the vegetable and the altar and let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? See, when God pours out judgment on his, on his own people, the watching world has a chance to say, see, look at them. They're destitute. Look, at, look their, their nation's torn apart. They're torn in pieces. Those Israelites, they say they're God's children, but... They're not so much to look at. And Joel says, look, we need to repent so that God's name isn't run into the ground. We need to repent because God's character is at stake. We don't want people to say, where is their God? That's what the Israelites didn't want. And you know what? It's the same need for us. Because when Christians live in continued sin and they're always under the disciplining hand of God, the watching world has a chance to say, they say they're a Christian, but look at their life. I mean, it's a mess. They're in shambles. Uh, it." They don't, they don't act like they love God and God's always punishing them and their, their life is ruined. It's an insult to, to God's name from a watching world. And so one day there's going to be a day of universal judgment. And in that day, it's going to become apparent where Israel's God is. He is going to be their savior. And he's going to be our savior. We are going to be rescued from universal judgment. We who are true believers Yet it's possible that you're here today and you're not a true believer. You don't experience God's discipline when you sin. You don't know what it's like to feel sorry for your sin. You don't know what it's like to have the power to turn from your sin. You don't like to think about God as a punishing God. You don't like to think about discipline. You don't even like to think about death. And for you this morning, how I, how I urge you, 
not to return again, like Joel was saying, but to come for the first time to the cross of Jesus Christ and beg him for your forgiveness. Because you need to understand today that what Joel has, the picture Joel has painted of God is true. God is a punishing God. And God will punish you if you do not repent. In fact, for all of us who are Christians, God has already poured out his punishment on our sins too, right? God poured out every bit of this just wrath, not on you, Christian, but on Jesus Christ. And he bore it all at the cross. And every bit of guilt and punishment that we deserved, Christ bore on himself in his own body on the tree. We can delight in that, that God is a punishing God and God doesn't overlook the sin of the Christian. It's just that he put it all on Jesus and Jesus bore that burden for us. And so when we read about God being a punishing God, when we read about the need for repentance, at the very least, we can go back to the cross and say, praise God, he is a punishing God and he punished Jesus for me. And he put my sin on Jesus and he gave me Jesus' righteousness and and I am free from the universal judgment that will come. No, that doesn't mean that we are free from God's disciplining hand, but we are free from the wrath of eternal condemnation from God. We need to distinguish those two things. We need to distinguish what is God's disciplining hand to bring us back and what is God's retribution on sin. We will never experience the wrath of God in judgment against us, but we will experience the disciplining hand of God to bring us back. And we delight in that disciplining hand. And so as we read about a punishing God, it is right for us to fear God. It is right for us to respect his amazing power and his character that is driving his punishment. It's right for us to look at the book of Joel and say, God hates sin and so must I. It is right for us to look at Joel and say, God warns that future judgment is coming. I must turn back to God. He has given us all an opportunity, numerous opportunities to turn to him As Christians, we need to take that opportunity daily. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you need to be warned that a future judgment awaits you. But you can turn now. Today is the day of salvation. It can be for you. The book of Joel is preeminently relevant to our lives. It's not easy. We have to do some work to understand. And yet these truths can be can be readily understood. God punishes sin. God warns that there is a future punishment coming for sin. And God calls you to repent because of your sin. Let's have God's perspective on sin. Let's realize that God always punishes sin, and so we must repent accordingly.